This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 8, Episode 1, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are, a conversation with author Libby Copeland. More than 30 million Americans have used at-home DNA testing kits, including me. Whether you swab your inner cheek, or more likely, spit into a vial, you're entering on a journey of self-discovery, which modern science has made possible. Our guest today is Libby Copeland, who has researched this subject in depth. It was only in the late 1990s that President Clinton announced that the human genome had been mapped. But genetic science has quickly found its way into the popular culture with companies like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, MyHeritage, and Family Tree DNA sprouting up. They've brought the science of genetic testing into our homes at an affordable price. But what is our motivation for taking such tests? Is it self-knowledge through discovering our roots? Is it family unification or health history or perhaps just simple curiosity? Discovering that one might have a predisposition to breast cancer, for instance, through the BRCA gene or other life-threatening illnesses can help us make informed health decisions. Or they can also change our lifestyles to forestall the onset of such serious illnesses. Can we really control our genes through better diet, cleaner environment, or other epigenetic strategies? Or do our genes predetermine our fate health-wise? And if so, are we better off not knowing what fate has in store for us through genetic determinism? Libby Copeland has ventured into this brave new world of genetic science in her book, The Lost Family, and she answers many of our questions and addresses our concerns. She's interviewed the founders of the leading DNA testing companies, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and Family Tree DNA. These are the men and women who've brought the high science of genetic testing to our kitchen tables. She explains the science in layman's terms, and at the same time, She folds the technical details and the science into the lives of everyday Americans who've taken the test and thereby changed their own lives and their family history. The principal story that's woven into the text and the narrative is that of a family of seven brothers and sisters, a close-knit, middle-aged Irish Catholic clan, secure in their identity their relationships, family history, professions, and faith, until two of the sisters take the at-home DNA test. The results present them and their siblings with a conundrum of identity and multi-generational trauma. But in the end, and after several years of diligent sleuthing, it's actually DNA testing that reveals the answers they could never have imagined. These modern-day Miss Marples are driven by genetic science and the Internet to unravel a mystery spanning continents and more than a century. 
as computer science scientists, they're driven to find the truth. I don't intend to reveal the storyline. That's up to you, the listener, to read the book. But Libby strikes the perfect balance of science and entrepreneurship, all within the context of a family of seven siblings whose identities are different from what they had always assumed. But in the end, the answer to their own conundrum was etched into their own DNA and was hiding in plain sight. Joining us from her home in Westchester County, New York, is author Libby Copeland. Hi, Libby. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. My pleasure. Libby, can you take a few moments and share with our listeners your career as a journalist and an author? Sure. Um, I landed at the Washington Post after college, and I spent the first 10 years of my career there. Um, I was a, a reporter and an editor when I was at the Washington Post. And then I left and I went freelance and I've written for um, a lot of different publications, including the New York Times, Smithsonian and The Atlantic. And um, my work has gradually come to embrace, um, I guess you would call it like the intersection between culture and science. So I'm really interested in questions around technology, identity, self-conception, um, and sort of how we construct our, our worlds and our narratives. Um, and then I wrote uh, this book, The Lost Family, which came out in 2020, which looks at, as you've aptly described, uh, you know, the world of what's known as recreational DNA testing, which is, you know, um, DNA testing that you do at home through a mailing kit. Uh-huh. And what was the, what was the genesis of this particular project? So I was in conversation several years ago with my editor at the Washington Post, and we were talking about the unexpected consequences of DNA testing. So, you know, there's a lot of people who go into DNA testing, especially as it's expanded and come to appeal more and more to casual consumers. There are a lot of people who go into this um, this industry with very little in the way of expectations. They're simply curious. Um, and because they are simply curious, they are often... Um, ill-prepared for the fact that sometimes when you do your family history research, you find out that things are drastically different than you understood. Um, it's just sort of a, a, a reality that longtime genealogists tend to be pretty aware of, but casual consumers less so. Um, and there is a significant subset of people who take a DNA test and discover something profoundly unexpected, right? Something very, very different about their own genetic origins, their families, or their roots. Um, and there's often... Um, really kind of um, significant reasons why they don't know. So sort of significant historical reasons, family secrets, decisions that were made as a result of um, necessity within a society or community or stigmas, trying to avoid certain stigmas or taboos. Um, so there's lots of sort of ways in which that information now is falling into our lap because all of a sudden we take a DNA test because we just want to know how Italian we are. Right. right. Um, and so the editor and I were in discussion about this. And we were kind of fascinated by this idea that technology was um, in unforeseen ways touching our most intimate lives. Right. Your your idea of who you are, how you see yourself and how you present yourself to the world is being irrevocably altered. And not because we set out to alter it, but because we decided to spit into it to just find out what our what our ethnicity estimate pie charts are. So we were interested in both the broader impact of the industry, you know, as an industry, um, you know, as as science, um, kind of 
broadly speaking, why is genealogy and DNA so big right now? And then, you know, telling um, some of these kind of stories. And so I wrote uh, a piece for the Washington Post about one very compelling story um, of an unexpected DNA surprise. Um, and what happened was I got this kind of outpouring of reader email, um, literally like hundreds of emails within the first month after the piece ran from people who were saying, oh, my gosh, I really resonated with that. Um, that was a great story. But now let me tell you what happened to me. I took a DNA test three years ago, three months ago. My life has been totally changed. And I want to share that. And I was reading these stories and I was so moved by them. Um, I thought, you know, this is, this is absolutely incredible, right? This is like where we're most vulnerable. Um, and, um, and this technology is so powerful. So I started talking to some of these people on the phone, interviewing them, emailing with people. Um, and I realized that this phenomenon of, you know, the, the DNA testing kind of changing your perspective on yourself and your world, um, maybe altering your sense of your family or your ideas about ethnicity and race or your own roots, um, that that touched a really wide variety of, um, of, of Americans. It wasn't limited to a particular demographic or a particular, um, you know, area or age group. It was widespread. And this um, just kind of blew me away. I thought this was a, a, a kind of a seismic cultural change for Americans. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I wanted to write the book at that point. You know, when you, when you were talking with the founders of those leading companies, that, uh, that I referenced earlier, who do the DNA testing, did they have any clue when they, as entrepreneurs, they came up with this idea of commercializing uh, genome testing and marrying it to gene genealogy, did they have any clue that they were unleashing a huge cultural seismic tectonic change in American society? Uh, yes and no. Um, I spent a lot of time with the founder of the oldest company for family history DNA testing um, in the United States. It's called um, Family Tree DNA, and uh -huh. they're down in Houston, Texas. Um, they were founded and sent out their first test kits. They founded in the late 90s. They sent out their first test kits in April of 2000, so exactly 21 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and the founder is a man named Bennett Greenspan, and he told me that when he was first testing this um, DNA test, you know, back in the late 90s, that within what he was doing called proof of concept testing, so he was trying to make sure that this test actually worked the way he imagined it would work, um, he found a surprise within the cohort of men that he had tested. Um, and that surprise was, you know, a really big deal, right, in terms of, of one particular person's sense of identity and understanding mm -hmm. of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so he he saw it as early as that, right? Um, but at the same time, um, he always imagined that his product, for a very long time, at least in the beginning, would be a niche product. He thought it was for family history enthusiasts like himself. Um, mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense because if you look back at the early history of DNA testing, what Bennett Greenspan of Family Tree DNA was offering was um, – you know, an expensive product, much more expensive than it is now, that could tell you a lot less about your immediate genetic kin and your um, your forebears and um, your ethnicity than the testing that's available now, which is quite different and more advanced. 
So, you know, for a long time, it was this kind of narrow package that was just, you know, he would go to genealogical conferences and he would try to persuade people um, to buy his product and he would have a hard time, he told me. Um, but that all changed with the advent of something called autosomal DNA, which came on the scene about 10 years ago, a little more. Um, and that, you know, gives you much more comprehensive information um, about yourself and your family and it has, the price has dropped as, as well a good deal. So, um, you know, the... That there's certainly no um, excuse for, at this point, any company who's selling these DNA test kits to say they don't know that this happens because they get these calls to their customer service lines all the time. And in fact, several of the major companies have special elevated um, kind of specialized customer service agents mm -hmm. who take questions just from people who call in and say, I don't understand my results. They don't comport with my expectations or my understanding of my family. Or, you know, this test is telling me that somebody, some stranger is my father, or this test <laughs> is telling me that I have an older half sister, but I know yes. I don't have an older half sister. You guys must have switched the vials. Um, the vials weren't switched, right? <laughs> almost never were the vials switched. It is almost always we as the consumers who have our family stories wrong. Um, so, yes, I would say the companies at this point are extremely aware. They've been aware for quite some time, probably um, from the very beginning. Well, on that point, um, very good friends of ours, she and her two brothers took the test. They discovered that they had an older half-sister. They had no clue, so they... They didn't, uh, they didn't share it with their mother. They discussed it among themselves, and then they decided to present this evidence to their mother. And their mother, who, is, who was 91 at the time, fessed up and said, yes, in 1962, I had a one-night stand. I became pregnant. I had a daughter. She was actually a nurse. She was a practicing nurse at the time. I had a daughter. I put her up for adoption. And then I went on about my life as a nurse. I met your father in 1964, met him, had a wonderful family, raised you all you kids, etc. But for 50 years, that secret was hers and hers alone. But she was once she was confronted with it, she was very happy to share the information. They have now met this half-sister. The half-sister has met her birth mother. So in that case, there was a happy ending to that story. But, but that's just one family that I know. Uh, so it sounds as though there, there could be many families out there like that. Wow, yeah, that's a really fascinating story. Yeah, there are so many stories like that. And, you know, families respond in a really wide variety of ways. And one of the things that I was trying to do in The Lost Family was sort of give a sense of how these stories go. Um, I think, you know, Certainly within um, the media, there's sometimes a bias towards the happy reunion stories, which is not to say that those stories don't happen. They definitely happen. Um, but a lot of the stories that I encountered were just more complicated than that, right? Um, even if they were kind of happy reunions, they were nuanced. They were emotionally um, bittersweet because of the lost time, you know, the, the, the fact that um, these kind of cultural practices of the past had prevented people from having relationships with, say, for instance, their siblings or their children or their mothers um, for, um, for decades, right? And that, that can be kind of a painful thing to make peace with. Um, mm -hmm. And in, there are a lot of situations for families where there's not that embrace. 
Um, and then the person who is um, the seeker, the person who is kind of seeking their genetic kin and facing perhaps some rejection, um, has to figure out how to um, stabilize themselves in the face of that rejection, which can feel incredibly personal, um, even though in some sense it's not about them, right? It's often um, a rejection that's predicated on the idea of people not wanting to change or not wanting to have certain kind of family narratives um, threatened by the reality of something that happened in the past that's never been acknowledged. Um, and so there are a lot of people out there right now, a lot of Americans who frankly are in a lot of pain. Um, mm -hmm. And it is some ways, I think, a mental health um, crisis or a mental health need for sure, um, because there are a lot of people who take a DNA test, they discover that they're not who they thought. Their father, for instance, isn't, isn't their father. Um, and that can constitute a trauma. And then they're like, and now what? And it is not always clear, A, um, you know, how to reach out to family and exactly how that's supposed to go. There's no mediators to help you. Mm -hmm. um, and B, you know, how you kind of process that and incorporate that into your sense of self when you've lived the first 55 years of your life um, with a different understanding of your identity. Well, to that point... Another good friend of mine, he was adopted. He was uh, raised happily by, by another family. And then uh, later on in life, well into his 60s, uh, he actually discovered his birth mother. Uh, and he, he had uh, a number of uh, half-siblings, etc. So he contacted the half-siblings and asked if he could be in contact with his birth mother. His birth mother was quite chilly to the idea. They spoke on the phone. She was quite ill when he finally contacted her. Uh, she was quite ill at the time that he contacted her. And then he asked her, he said, you're my birth mother. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to shake your hand. I'd love to hug you. And she rejected that. She did not want that to happen. Wow. And, and she subsequently died. Now, my, my friend John uh, is then, and he's a tough guy, uh, but he was left with that he'd had the rejection throughout his life. And then in the last moment when he thought he was grasping at that one last minute of reunification, he was yeah. rejected in yeah, verbally by the mother. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really painful. Now there was There's a, a woman, there, there yeah. was another story in your, uh, there was another anecdote in your book, uh, the Ochoa anecdote where mm -hmm. as a baby yeah. in 1965, she was left on the doorstep of a pastor and then for she sought out her family. She did the test. She found her birth family. There were five sisters in the birth family. And they couldn't believe that their deceased mother would have done such a thing to have left an infant baby on the doorstep of a pastor. Mm -hmm. And in your book, and in your book, you mentioned that those five half sisters are quite chilly to Ms. Ochoa. Could you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah. Um I was just about to tell you that because it, it, that story that you told me kind of reminded me of the story of Jackie Ochoa who's in my book. Um, yeah, I and mean, she she was a foundling. As you said, she was placed on a pastor's doorstep. Um, she searched and searched for the identity of her birth mother because she wanted to put some bones on that story. She wanted context for understanding um, her mother's actions. She needed to make sense of it. And she needed to know who her genetic parents were, even though, you know, she was raised in a loving home and she loved um, her parents. Um, so, you know, those were her parents, the people who raised her. Um, but she still had a desire. And, and you hear this over and over, you know, you can adore your parents 
Um, but you can still want to know who your genetic parents are. And that's a, sort of a different facet to identity. It doesn't imply a rejection mm-hmm. of, of, you know, your, of, of the family that you grew up in, um, that you consider your parents and your family. Um, so, you know, with her, she had a several siblings on her, um, on her genetic father's side. Um, they didn't want a relationship with her because they said that, you know, her, um, her presence in their life kind of reminded them of a, a man with whom they had had a turbulent relationship. He nice. wasn't the greatest guy. And mm-hmm. so it was painful for them to remember him and consequently painful for them to have a relationship with her. Um, and then on her mother's side, as you said, um, there was, uh, I think it's two siblings, two sisters who said, uh, two half sisters who said, um, you know, our mother wouldn't do that with their, with their line to Jackie. Our mother would not do that. And meanwhile, these are women who are showing up as matching her in a database of half sisters. So there's not much doubt about it from a scientific point of view, but they decided that they didn't believe it, right? So they were going to do what they needed to kind of maintain their sense of security and their idea about their mom. Um, I mentioned earlier that sometimes family narratives can be threatened by the things that come through DNA testing. And I think of these as almost like sacred truths, right? We have our, um, our understandings of our family. Maybe our parents have passed, but we have our, um, are kind of basic narratives about them, right? And when those get threatened by the revelations that are contained in a DNA test in this era of genetic reckoning, um, people can react surprisingly, right? They can say, I don't believe the results that are right in front mm-hmm. of me. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in the case of Jackie. And she described it as as a rejection twice over. And that was what was so painful was, you know, having felt that her mom had first abandoned her and that rejection, which had um, shaped her life growing up. She, she always felt in pain about it. Um, even though she grew up in a loving home, um, it just was a hole inside of her that, um, you know, she had difficulty healing and then to experience it all over again when her um, maternal half siblings, told her they didn't believe the science and that their mother wouldn't do that felt like a rejection all over again. And that, that was just deeply, deeply painful for her. You know, um, I think at this point, why don't we come on and talk about the stars of our show or the stars of the book, um, Alice and Jerry Collins. How did you, how did you come across this fascinating family, seven siblings, uh, all of whom seem to have done very well in life and, uh, you know, they were uh, part of an Irish are part of an Irish Catholic clan. How did you? Yeah. How did you come across them and uh, tell us their story? Sure. So, um, you know, I found um, Alice Collins' playbook, who's sort of the she's the protagonist of the Lost Family, um, through conversations with a genetic genealogist in Southern California named Cece Moore. Uh, and C.C. Moore is a fairly prominent person within the world of genetic genealogy. And genetic genealogy, by the way, is people who work with traditional genealogical records, and they also work with DNA results to understand families. C.C. Moore has worked as a search angel, which is somebody who basically volunteers their time to help people find their genetic kin. So, for instance, if you are um, someone who is adopted or donor-conceived, you might turn to somebody like C.C., particularly years ago when the databases were much smaller. Um, nowadays, it's easier for people to kind of figure out their 
um, immediate birth families on their own because the databases are so big that they regularly are um, turning up very close relatives that make it fairly easy. But, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years ago when you would test and the closest cousin you would get was a fourth cousin or a third cousin, uh, people might turn to someone like Cece Moore and say, like, help me figure this out. And there are techniques for figuring out the identity of somebody who is not in the database. Um, and that is through doing genealogical research and looking at the DNA. Uh, and so um, Cece had worked with Alice and Alice, um, and she sort of mentioned Alice's story. And I got on the phone with Alice and I, well, the first time I talked to her, uh, it was like an hour and a half and she was, you know, just a fire hose of information, incredibly detailed information, remarkable mind. And she was so amazing. I mean, she remembered everything and anything she didn't remember, she had saved. Uh-huh. So she could give me down to like the very most granular details, precisely what her journey had been. And I got off the phone and I thought to myself, man, if this story checks out, um, I, I like I'm I'm done right like I, I I I've got the most compelling narrative I'm ever going to find absolutely right? and so you, you couldn't make you couldn't I, make you it know, up so I you know I wound up feeling like you know the, my book The Lost Family has a lot of stories in it it's got the yes. industry it's got you know a lot of like California color for sure because of some of the characters and companies that are based there it's got you know a lot of philosophy and bioethics got a lot of pieces to it but at its heart and I knew it needed to be a human story and I could tell a lot of different stories but I wanted there to be a central narrative a main thread that was so compelling that it read essentially like I wanted it to read like an Agatha Christie mystery right which is why Mm -hmm. it's so great that you described Alice and her sister as Miss Marple (laughs) I wanted it to be a page turner because I felt no I want people to not be able to put this book down um and I want them not to be like um, intimidated by the science. I want it to be user-friendly and the science to be accessible and then Alice to just power you through the book. And she does. She's somebody who took a DNA test in 2012 um, at the really at the dawn of the type of DNA testing that we're talking about, which is autosomal DNA testing. Um, in fact, the test she took was through a company called Ancestry, which is the biggest company in the space right now. And they were still beta testing their home DNA So, you know, she wasn't even sure how good the results were going to be, like if they were even reliable. And what was strange was she took this test. She goes into it knowing she's Irish-American, very, very strong Irish roots. She's done her genealogy on both sides, you know, raised in an Irish Catholic family, super strong sense of ethnic identity. She takes this test and it is confounding because the results seem to suggest that she is not entirely Irish and British and Scottish as she thought, primarily Irish, but is in fact half Ashkenazi Jewish, which is a term for Jews who come from, from Central and Eastern Europe. Yes. Um, and that doesn't make sense. And so, of course, she figures Ancestry isn't ready for prime time. They screwed up. Hey, I know. I'll take another test through this company called 23andMe. Yes. <laughs> so she turns to 23andMe, and lo and behold, the results are the same. And that is when she realizes she has a mystery on her hands that she needs to solve. And uh-huh. she delves into this mystery and it takes her two and a half years to solve it. But what's interesting about Alice's story is there are a lot of kind of more common explanations for DNA surprises. And she methodically goes through each one thinking, well, this is the most likely explanation. Let me explore it. Uh-huh. And then 
keeps going through them because none of them hold water. She subjects each one of them to you know scientific yes. investigation uh-huh. and finally eliminates all the most likely possibilities and arrives at something that you know com- is completely insane but turns out to be true. Um, and what the reason I'm mentioning all these different more common scenarios is those are some of the other stories in the book. So for instance, you know, the most likely scenario for someone in her position is probably that she is the product of an NPE or non-paternity event. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes NPE stands for not expected, but it, it's basically, you know, shorthand for the experience of discovering often through a DNA test that you're not genetically related to one or both of your parents, typically your dad. And that is one of the most common kinds of DNA surprises out there. So Alice does explore that. She's able to eliminate it. She eliminates the possibility she's adopted which is another kind of surprise that people get the possibility that she's donor conceived, which is another possibility people get uh-huh. the possibility that she is um, descended from a group of people who hid their genetic ancestry as an escape from discrimination, yes. which is another possibility she explored. And then finally comes to the kind of wild, um, you know, plot twisting yes. revelation at yes. the end of, at the end of her story and at the end of the book, of course, her story is not over. Um, I'm still in touch with her and, um, her journey to understanding who she really is, uh, you know, is quite nuanced and beautiful. And I think standing for a lot of American stories right now, where we're sort of discovering the truth about our roots. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, it truly is a page turner. Um, I've, I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. It's a perfect combination of science and human interest and uh, and and also her dogged she and her sister are doggedly determined and tenacious and then bring their five brothers into this quest, all of whom get the same results as she and her sister. So it's a, uh, a it, it's just a, a fascinating story. But, you know, the, the the other fascinating piece of it, as you mentioned in the book, is that the answer to their conundrum was etched into their own DNA, all seven of them, etched into it like uh, on, a, on a piece of stained glass, like a, letters on a stained glass. And it was in plain, it was hiding in plain sight. And what the science has given us now are the tools to read those etchings on the DNA. And that's that's the beauty of your book, that you've, you've outlined this, uh, this, the marriage of science with the basic human emotion of who am I, where do I come from? Yeah, I mean, I think that many Americans right now are embarked on what I would describe as existential mysteries, right? Mm-hmm. It's a mystery in the, in the style of a detective mystery, but the question is not who done it. The question is who am I? Yes. And that topic, that topic encompasses a lot of things. It's philosophy. Um, it's psychology, it's um, our understanding of, of biological difference um, and sameness, which I think is more, is more important um, and more true. Um, you know, it, it's truly, you know, it's truly making personal our understanding um, of genetics, which can be fairly abstract uh, and, and putting it at a really human level. And I think, a lot of Americans right now are grappling with this question of how much does genetics get to tell me about who I am when it is contrasting with my lived experience, right? How much do I own this? How much do I owe this? Um, and that, 
that is a fascinating question that doesn't have a single answer. It, it varies depending on the person that you're talking to. Now, Libby, is is it is it unique to we to us as Americans because of our our immigrant forebears, our melting pot culture, the fact that all of our ancestors came from somewhere else, every single one of us. Um, so is it unique to Americans or are other nationalities equally caught up in this search for their genetic roots and genetic forebears? Well, as you say, um, it is primarily an American phenomenon because most Americans' forebears did come from someplace else. Um, and many of them, as well, were subject to the forces of assimilation. That meant that they abandoned certain things about their um, their backgrounds, right? So they abandoned their language. Maybe they still cooked some traditional foods, but they lost a lot of um, traditions and customs and identity. And, and in many cases, particularly, I think, for white European Americans, who are the lion's share of people who are taking home DNA tests right now, in many cases, they don't actually even know where their parent, grandparents or great-grandparents mm-hmm. came from, right? right? They might not even know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that knowledge wasn't passed down. If you look at, for instance, in contrast, people in Europe, in many countries, in addition to there being regulatory policies or um, additional cultural concerns about testing like this, there's also already a strong sense that I know who I am, I came from here. Yes. Um, and if you did come from there, right, and maybe your family goes back many generations in a particular area, there's not, it is perceived that there's not as much to be gained by taking a DNA test. Mm-hmm. Um, there are places that have turned to DNA testing more so than others. Not, certainly not, none like Americans. We are definitely um, the majority of the people in the databases, but people in the UK and Canada and Australia um, and elsewhere um, do do test in greater degrees than elsewhere on the globe. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. When I did my own Ancestry.com test, um, I came up with 3,200 DNA matches, which is quite a few. And the major surprise in that testing was that I discovered a whole cluster of distant cousins in North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, that I never knew existed, that I never had any contact with. So that was my uh, DNA surprise. And that's, that, has, uh, that discovery has sent me on a, an entirely new pathway of inquiry and research. So that was the, my first experience with it. And my second experience with it was I was so fascinated by the family tree DNA offering of following the patrilineal direction, i.e. just your father's Y DNA chromosome. Uh, yeah. that I've I've sent off to I've I've sent off to, to follow that route to discover more about my paternal my paternal great grandfather. That's really cool. <laughs> so thank you. you thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for thank you for stirring that that interest <laughs> and giving me that that key, if you will, to uh, to help it, to help solve a, a personal mystery for myself. Now let's talk about the future of DNA testing. Um, you reference health concerns. We talked about health concerns, the BRCA gene, other genes that are directly related to, uh, to, to very serious illnesses. What's the future, what, what's the current status of DNA-related health 
testing and where do you see the future taking us? Yeah, so um, 23andMe has long been the company within this space um, of direct-to-consumer that really has focused on health-related testing. Um, there are other companies that um, that are also offering health-related testing that do it more um, kind of in connection with um, the medical establishment. So you might need like a doctor, a physician, um, assistance. You might need a basically a prescription, which you could get through your doctor or you can get often through a company which works with one of these testing companies, which works with a physician's uh, network. Um, but in, in terms of the really true direct-to-consumer space, 23andMe has always been um, carving that space out. And what's interesting is, um, and you're probably aware of this kind of, you know, already, but they're planning to go public. Um, and they were recently valued at $3.5 billion, and they've basically signaled that they're doubling down on health-related testing. Now, that's interesting because 23andMe built its database through focusing on ancestry and family research testing. In other words, people went to 23andMe not so much because they wanted to know if they had that BRCA mutation, but because they were curious, you know, about finding a long-lost first cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what built up their database. And then along the way, a lot of people who were in their database, the majority of people said, oh, yes, by the way, it's perfectly fine if you want to also, you know, use my genetic information in an aggregated, you know, anonymous form to uh, to do, um, you know, health research. Um, and that allowed 23andMe to really escalate and speed up the process of looking into health-related issues and things like drug development in a way that, you know, is much more, because they have so many people in their database, they can do it on a much greater scale and a much faster pace than mm-hmm. um, other kinds of medical settings and laboratories can, can do with their much slower recruitment process, right? So they are sort of announcing that they're doubling down on health-related, um, that health-related focus. And on the other side, Ancestry, which is the biggest behemoth in the space, its database is the biggest of the four major companies, has dipped its toe into health-related testing and then backed away, and they appear to be doubling down on family research, you know, focus, so genealogical inquiry. Um, people with Ancestry, they taste, take a test, and then they are often then intrigued to compare their family trees with other relatives that they find and start doing genealogical research, which often means that they're then buying subscriptions to Ancestry's vast stores of genealogical records. Mm -hmm. Um, So they have a completely different business model. So that's the interesting thing is sort of seeing where this field goes, Um, you know, if it's going to go in the health-related direction where a lot of people feel that there's much more potential and that it's much more um, lucrative in the long run? Um, or, you know, is a company like Ancestry that's putting its money, at least for now, they appear to be putting its money on um, Ancestry-related testing, like, are they going to be, you know, the sure bet? Um, there's some signs that the the um, the world of people who want to test because they're curious about their roots and family history has been slowing down because they've kind of been gobbled up already. Mm. So it may turn out mm-hmm. that health is indeed where things go. And if that is the case, then you're probably going to see more and more of a coming together between a company like 23andMe and like the medical establishment, the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense for 23andMe located here in the Bay Area uh, with two leading biotech 
research establishments like UCSF here in San Francisco and Stanford and Palo Alto, leaders in the field of biotechnology research and genetic researching, uh, it's, uh, it makes sense for 23andMe being in that geography to offer health-related genetic testing. And also, it also makes sense, if you will, the geography kind of determines Ancestry.com's focus on family research because they're located in Utah. The Mormon Church has played a very important role in family history, genealogical history. So they, uh, it seems that maybe Ancestry.com is a little more influenced by that geographical connection and weight of tradition of importance of genealogy in Utah. Just a guess. Yeah, that may be. Um, that's certainly probably playing a role in this. And I also think at the same time, these companies have to explore what the national and international um, kind of appeal of their companies is, right? So they've also got to be looking at the larger market of where is this going? Yeah. Um, and that is a question if you're doubling down on ancestry research. Um, the question is, will there be more excitement and energy in markets outside of the United States? Is that an opportunity for growth? Mm-hmm. Well, Libby, in the remaining moments of our, of our podcast, do you have any additional thoughts as we, uh, as we come to the end of our podcast? And in particular, um, ha- do you continue to remain in contact with the Collins family? Yeah, absolutely. Alice um, and I have become friends, and we email quite a bit. I'm friends with Cherry, um, her sister, and so, you know, I do keep in contact with them. Um, And they continue to do their research. You know, um, Alice has found um, and made contact with um, many of her Jewish cousins and gotten to know them, Uh um, and also been able to um, understand where she comes from and document her ancestors and get photographs for them. I mean, she's an unbelievable sleuth. I would put her on any case and <laughs> assume that she could solve it. <laughs> and uh, any other, uh, any other, any other uh, possibility of a sequel to this book? Good question. You know, I get a lot of emails from people um, who either have read the book or know my work or have read a column, and they want to reach out and tell me about. Um, their own DNA testing experiences. And so there's a lot of stories out there. And, you know, honestly, the book, when I first wrote it, it was much, much longer and I had to cut it back because there were so many good stories. I could have written the book twice over because there's so many incredible stories. Uh So it's a good question about whether um, there's another, you know, book in this or I, you know, I do think there's um, certainly a lot more stories to be told, but maybe with a slightly different focus. I see. Now, you did mention that while the hard copy was published in 2020, the paperback version is going to be published in June? Yeah, that's right. Thanks for mentioning that. I'm, I'm super excited um, about my paperback coming out. Yeah, the paperback, it'll, I think it'll make it much more accessible for people. Um, paperback's usually cheaper, and that means that um, you know people can buy it more easily and they can use it for book clubs. Um, and I have also, I should say, a newsletter, which is at my website, which is um, LibbyCopeland.com. And I do send out very occasional updates. So I'll be sending out stuff when the paperback comes out, and I send out things um, connected to um, op-eds and columns that I write. Um, I had a recent um, op-ed, as you think, I think you know, in the San Francisco Examiner. I yes. had one last month in the New York Times. So I, I like to kind of keep up on this space and write about it. I think it's very important 
space that's that's kind of defining our culture at this moment. Um, so if people want to kind of read more of that stuff um, and their special offers, they can sign up for my newsletter at libbycopeland.com. That's www.libbycopeland.com. Listeners, please take note of that. And when your paperback comes out, I assume it'll be available online, Amazon, and uh, your other favorite uh, book sellers, both online and uh, in on shelves, right? Yeah, it's yep, it's widely available. Um, there's audio versions and Kindle versions, um, but I want to put in a plug for Bookshop.org. Okay. Bookshop.org supports um, independent booksellers. Um, Amazon's great, and you know I don't know many um, people who will object to their book being purchased in whatever form um, at whatever bookseller. But um, if you want to support independent booksellers, which is my particular bias. Um, if you go to bookshop.org, they are a consortium of independent bookstores. And particularly during the pandemic, when it's hard for these bookstores to stay open, yes. um, I've been trying to support them and let people know about them. Not a lot of people do. And so once again, it's booksellers.org? Bookshop.org. Bookshop, bookshop.org. Bookshop.org. Again, listeners, please take note. Well, Libby, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your insights and perspective on America's new love affair with family history. And and you have actually given us the tools and the context to to begin to make sense of this this new this whole new area of study. And as you said, over thirty million Americans have now taken this test. And uh, once again, thank you so much for for sharing those insights and perspectives with us. Oh, Jim, thanks so much for having me on, and um, good luck with your genealogical inquiry. I'm super <laughs> curious to know where it goes. I will, you know what, I will, uh, I will, you will be among the first to know. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, and subscribe. It's free to do so. And a subscription ensures that new episodes go straight to your inbox. You can also listen to all 145 episodes, peruse my blog, read excerpts from my book, leave me a message, or send me an email. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host Jim Herlihy, reporting from America's favorite city, San Francisco.